When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. True crime. Unsolved cases. Strange disappearances. Join me as we travel through the timeline of some of the darkest acts in human history. I'm your host, Kevin Eustace, and welcome to the first season of The Deadly Countdown. Episode 10, the season one finale, John Wayne Gacy, Killer Clown. Terry, the horrible truth to suburban contractor John Gacy's rambling statements to police last week is becoming more and more evident with each passing day. Six more bodies unearthed from the basement crawl space of Gacy's Norwood Park Township home today, bringing to 15 the number found there since Friday. That was WLS-TV's Eyewitness News at 5, delivering the news that more and more bodies were being unearthed at John Wayne Gacy's home. Little did they know at the time that in terms of confirmed bodies at least, that number would more than double. I'm Kevin Eustace and welcome back to the season finale of The Deadly Countdown. Today, of course, we're going to be taking a look at the deadly clown, John Wayne Gacy. But before we do, a few quick announcements. Firstly, thank you so much for joining me on this journey of true crime. This is only season one. And yes, we're new to the format were new to the game. However, things will continue to get better. And we will start that with Season 2, which will debut on January the 5th. So, whilst we take our three-week mid-season break, now is the perfect opportunity to go and join our crime team over on Patreon. When you sign up to our Patreon, not only do you receive ad-free early access to all our shows but you also receive a bi-weekly Patreon-only podcast, Cold Case. On Cold Case, we take a look at some of the most famous unsolved and mysterious crimes that have taken place throughout history. We've already covered famous cases like D.B. Cooper and The Black Dahlia, so by signing up, you can listen to those shows during our downtime between seasons. We're building a wonderful true crime community over on Patreon, and we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash the deadly countdown, just like the following wonderful new team members have. Billy Book, Kathy Garner, Kelly Colmer, Samantha Ellis, Trudy R., Peter, Amy Ferrell, and Tom S., A huge thank you to our wonderful newest founding members of our crime community over on Patreon. So why not treat yourself to an early Christmas gift and head over to patreon.com forward slash the deadly countdown. But right now, for John Wayne Gacy, Killer Clown. 
Let's start the deadly countdown. John Stanley Gacy and Marion Elaine Robinson gave birth to a son who they named John Wayne on March the 17th, 1942 in Chicago. Things were pretty severe from the get-go. In Barry E. Boschelli's book, Johnny and Me, The True Story of John Wayne Gacy, apparently John and his two sisters experienced harsh and severe corporal punishment at the hands of their father, a machinist in the automobile repair industry and a World War I veteran. Their father, who was also an alcoholic, frequently resorted to using razor straps to discipline them whenever he thought their behaviour was unacceptable. John's father frequently belittled him, making unfavourable comparisons to his sisters and asserting that he lacked any intelligence. In Terry Sullivan's book, Killer Clown, The John Wayne Gacy Murders, it's revealed that Gacy's psychosexual development began at a very young age, between six and ten years old. During this time, he reportedly engaged in inappropriate behaviour with the teenage daughter of a family friend. Sullivan asserts that when Gacy was between the age of ten and twelve, He and a companion were accused of engaging in sexual fondling with a young child. Additionally, Gacy himself would experience early age abuse from an apparent family friend. Gacy went through a lot of internal conflict when he discovered he had a preference for males. He also struggled to connect with peers of his own age and he found athletics equally difficult due to being overweight, slightly clumsy, and he also had a medical condition. You see, John Wayne had a heart defect, but his father saw his congenital defect as just another reason his son was inadequate. In his adolescence, he experienced frequent hospitalizations as a result of recurring seizures and episodes of unconsciousness. Notwithstanding these grave health concerns, his father still maintained his suspicions that this was all fake, just so he could receive medical care. After high school, Gacy enrolled in the Northwestern Business College in Chicago to further his studies and managed to get a degree despite leaving high school without a diploma. Then he meets Marilyn Myers, whose father had three Kentucky Fried Chicken locations in Waterloo, Iowa. He met her in 1964, and after a whirlwind romance, they got engaged. Gacy then moved to Iowa to oversee the restaurants, and with business booming and security seemingly guaranteed, he and Myers had two children together. Gacy ascended the ranks to attain the position of a Democratic precinct commander in the Chicago suburbs and established himself as a self-made construction contractor during the 1970s. Upon deeper contemplation, 
he began to question the underlying motives behind his active involvement in politics. He wondered if, on some level, his decision to engage in this field was a subconscious effort to provoke a reaction from his father. This introspection was partly fueled by the memory of his father, who often teased his son's political leanings. This teasing, though seemingly playful, may have inadvertently influenced his choice to immerse himself in the political arena, possibly as a means to assert his individuality, or even challenge his father's views. According to reports, Gacy claimed that seeking acceptance was a strategy he used, influenced by his father, who ingrained in him the belief that he was never good enough. Gacy garnered the admiration and respect of his neighbours by actively participating in political affairs, the JC's civic organisation and a multitude of cultural activities. Gacy, upon reflection, recognised this period as the most joyous of his life. It was also characterised by the highly sought-after praise from his father, who acknowledged his fatherly errors in assessing his son as having low intellect. As cited in an interview for the book Buried Dreams, Gacy stated, Alderman was a position I was contemplating running for. I had aspirations of running for mayor after that, and if that failed, for the state. No boundaries were apparent to me. This statement reflects his ambitions and political aspirations during that time. But politics aside... Gacy also had a series of alter egos. During his time as a member of the Jolly Joker Clown Club in Chicago, Gacy often took on the role of entertaining under his clown alter egos. Pogo the Clown and Patches the Clown. His performances were not limited to a single event. He was a regular feature at children's parties, where his clown persona brought joy and laughter to the young children. But his event involvement was multifaceted. He would do charity events, either as pogo or patches, helping drawing in larger crowds, thereby aiding in raising more funds for the causes at hand. His ability to engage with both children and adults alike made him a much sought-after entertainer, especially in his area. Gacy's commitment to these roles went beyond mere appearances. He was known to meticulously prepare for each event, ensuring his costume, makeup and performance were tailored to suit the occasion. This dedication to his clown personas was a testament to his desire to provide genuine entertainment, to be an integral part of the community's social fabric. Moreover, Gacy's involvement in the Jolly Joker Clown Club 
was indicative of his desire to connect with others who shared his interest in clowning. This club provided a platform for him to collaborate with fellow enthusiasts, exchange ideas and refine his skills as an entertainer. His performances at children's parties and charity events, coupled with his active membership in the Jolly Joker Club, showcased a side of Gacy that was enthusiastically embraced by the community. Or, as Gacy put it, clowns can get away with murder. Gacy was accused of engaging in sexual abuse with one teenage boy and making an attempt to abuse another in 1968. Certain members of the community placed their trust in his fervent denial of the accusations instead of the victim's accounts. In the book Killer Clown, it's mentioned that Gacy attempted to obstruct one of the victim's testimony by instructing one of his followers to assault him. After Gacy was convicted and sentenced to jail time, his wife initiated divorce proceedings and obtained sole custody of their children. Gacy completed his 18-month sentence without any problems and was released on parole during the summer of 1970. But Gacy was once again apprehended the following year on allegations of attempting to manipulate another adolescent, attempting to get the boy to engage in sexual intercourse with him after enticing him into his vehicle and transporting him to his place of residence. Due to the minor's absence during the trial, the charges were dismissed. Gacy acquired a residence in Norwood Park, Illinois, specifically at 8213 West Summerdale Avenue, utilising financial assistance from his mother. This location would serve as the site for all his subsequent murders. Gacy founded PDM Contractors, a construction firm, in 1971. The product achieved immediate success and consistently grew in size and scope. Seemingly on a roll, Gacy then got engaged to his high school sweetheart, Carol Hoff, in the same year. In 1972, they got married. The main workforce at PDM Contractors was comprised of adolescent males, whom he would subject to harassment, threats and physical assaults in order to coerce them into providing sexual favours. Nevertheless, Gacy managed to uphold a facade of being a benevolent neighbour, hosting lots of summer gatherings. In January 1972, Gacy lured 16-year-old Timothy McCoy to his home so they could have sex, and he committed his first murder. When Gacy woke up the next morning, he turned to see McCoy, who apparently was waiting with a knife at the door to the bedroom. Gacy killed McCoy by quickly and forcefully slitting his throat with that very knife. Later, 
Gacy would realise that McCoy's purpose was only to make them breakfast, and the knife he was carrying was a warning rather than an actual threat. However, after learning that killing McCoy gave him a sexual rush, Gacy reportedly said, That's when I realised that death was the ultimate thrill. That's according to the book Buried Dreams, of course. Gacy also went after John Butkovich, an 18-year-old PDM worker, whom he tricked into going to his house to talk about unpaid overtime. According to Clifford Leindecker's book The Man Who Killed Boys, the John Wayne Gacy Jr. story, Gacy administered alcohol through injection, tricked him into wearing handcuffs, and subsequently strangled him. Gacy would frequently employ the use of handcuffs. You see, he could rationalise their use by saying it was part of a magic trick. He was, after all, a successful clown. The unwitting victim would often offer their own hands out to be handcuffed, believing they were about to witness something magical. It would only be when they would see Gacy's face change they would realise the mistake they'd made. However, Butkovich's parents harboured grave suspicions about Gacy and made over 100 requests to the police, pleading with them to look into him. By the middle of the 1970s, Gacy was being questioned by the police about the whereabouts of other people who had seemingly vanished and two more teenagers had accused him of rape. Known as Gacy's cruising years, this was the time when he killed the most people. The bulk of his victims were buried on the property, although others were buried in his shared tomb beneath his crawl space. According to John Wayne Gacy, Defending a monster, Gregory Godzik, a 17-year-old PDM worker, told his family that Gacy had given him orders to dig trenches in his house's crawl space. Gacy eventually told police he'd organised this labour to make room for body burying. Little did he know at the time, but Godzik was literally digging his own grave. When Godzik went missing, Gacy informed his family that Godzik had confided in him about a plan to leave the country. Gacy carried out multiple killings during this time. He kidnapped a 19-year-old college student named Robert Donnelly from a Chicago bus stop, but he decided to keep him alive. After taking Donnelly back to his home, Gacy sexually assaulted him and caused him great physical and emotional pain. This would involve repeatedly immersing his head in a bathtub until he passed out, and then he would act out executions with a loaded handgun. Donnelly was in excruciating pain and begged Gacy to end his life. 
But Gacy released him and told him not to tell anyone what happened. But Donnelly went ahead and reported him to the police anyway. Gacy, though, insisted that the contact had been voluntary all throughout the inquiry, and the police accepted that version of events. A month subsequently, Gacy carried out his next murder. Gacy soon began dumping his victim's remains into the De Plaine River in 1978, simply because his crawl space could no longer hold the amount of corpses. But there comes a point in the majority of serial killers' activities where they slip up. Enter Robert Peast, then 15, who vanished on December the 11th, 1978. He'd told his mother he was off to see Gacy to talk about a possible job in the construction industry. After receiving a missing persons report from Peast's family the police searched Gacy's Norwood Park home. Among the unusual items discovered were police credentials, a firearm, hypodermic needles, pornographic videos, and personal belongings of the victim. But it was when police stumbled upon a receipt that belonged to Peast on the day he went to Gacy's residence that Gacy's claim of having no interaction with Peast on that day he went missing started to look a bit shaky. As a result of the additional search, multiple trenches containing human remains were found in the crawl space beneath Gacy's residence. Even a trained magician couldn't talk themselves out of this one. And finally... Gacy did confess to homicide, but homicide of approximately 30 individuals. Months after Gacy's arrest, his home in West Summerdale Avenue, Norwood Park, Illinois, was demolished to find further evidence. The next year, the house and its outbuildings were destroyed, and the following year, they were replaced with a new home. Whilst at Gacy's home, a demolition worker made the observation, if the devil is alive, he lived here. On February the 6th, 1980, Gacy's trial started. The main question was whether Gacy was mad and ought to be sent to a state mental institution after confessing to the atrocities. The book Buried Dreams claims that Gacy spent a great deal of time at the Menard Correctional Centre in Chester, Illinois, talking with doctors and psychiatrists. Using multiple personality disorder as his defence, Gacy said he thought like a clown, like a politician like a contractor, and like Bad Jack. According to Berry Dreams, Gacy is depicted calling some of his victims and male prostitutes scum, weak, stupid, and therefore degraded by Bad Jack. 
who apparently detested everything which was homosexual. Due to his lunacy, Gacy entered a not-guilty plea to 33 murder charges. By demonstrating his meticulous preparation and cover-up, the prosecution argued that Gacy was competent to supervise his crimes and therefore in good mental health. The prosecution claimed, These were definitely the actions of a man who could plan ahead, prioritise his own interests when pressured, and remember every detail of his illegal deeds. Experts in mental health testified for both sides regarding Gacy's state of mind. But on March the 12th, 1980, Gacy was found guilty of all 33 murders, solidifying his standing as one of the most vicious serial killers in American history. But John Wayne Gacy would contest his conviction, and he would provide erratic justifications for the acts he committed in interviews while serving a 14-year sentence at Chester's Menard Correctional Centre. Even after admitting his guilt, Gacy then recorded a 12-minute statement to a 900 number in which he maintained his innocence. At the Menard Correctional Facility, Gacy concentrated on painting. Unbelievably, a Chicago gallery showed his paintings. Gacy commonly portrayed Pogo the Clown along with murder scene images. The Gacy artworks were even auctioned by Mullock's Auctions in Shropshire, UK, in 2017. They were recently resold again and they fetched, unbelievably, over $12,000. Gacy was slated for execution at the Stateville Correctional Centre in Crest Hill, Illinois, on May 10, 1994, after the US Supreme Court rejected his last appeal in October 93. Before his death, Gacy accused the state of murder and declared his death would not comfort the victim's families. Gacy did not speak during his death. Despite rumours, he cried, Kiss my arse, in his final moments, according to the prosecutor. Gacy was executed via lethal injection. Since Gacy was arrested, rumours that he committed unsolved murders have lingered. In fact, eight of the 1978 victims found at Gacy's home were never identified. Clowns should be known as they were historically known, as bringers of laughter and joy. But right now, in modern day, there is a 50-50 balance between a joyful clown and a terrifying clown. And it's the acts of John Wayne Gacy which largely helped perpetuate that 50% of terrifying clowns. Cholrophobia, 
or the fear of clowns is now a widely acknowledged phenomena. There are several theories around what causes this fear. Some believe it's the unpredictability of a clown's actions. Others believe the clown's white makeup is a signal of death, and therefore we have an internal subconscious fear that we're looking at a reanimated corpse. Or at the very least, some protective element from our caveman days thinks we're looking at someone who is diseased and therefore should be avoided at all costs. But the most likely theory, and the one I believe, is that due to the clowns painted on smile and makeup, you never truly know the emotional state of the individual you're looking at. And that certainly stands true in the case of John Wayne Gacy. I'd like to thank each and every one of you for tuning in for Season 1 of The Deadly Countdown. We now take our three-week break before the start of Season 2 on January the 5th, 2024. And I hope sincerely you have a wonderful and amazing festive period. Don't forget, by signing up to our Patreon, you can get these episodes both ad-free and before everyone else which means you will get first access to that debut episode of Season 2 and also access to the Patreon-only podcast, Cold Case. So why not treat yourself to an early Christmas gift and head over to patreon.com forward slash the deadly countdown. Any audio used in today's episode is covered by fair use and the links to which can be found in the show notes. I also found the books Johnny and Me, The True Story of John Wayne Gacy by Barry E. Buscelli, Killer Clown, The John Wayne Gacy Murders by Terry Sullivan, and Buried Dreams, Inside the Mind of John Wayne Gacy by Tim Cahill, extremely helpful in the research for today's show. But right now, for John Wayne Gacy, let's stop the clock. (laughs) 